We make all kinds of connections, from our neighbors to our co-workers, from family members to people we interact with in business every day. What about the connections we make to ourselves? Today, we'll explore the connections that we make and how they define our lives. This is Things Worth Considering with hosts Gord Riddell and Alexia Georgiousis. It's time to consider the possibilities. Good evening and welcome to Things Worth Considering. I'm your host, Gord Riddell, and I am here with our co-host, who is our very own doctor of naturopathic medicine, Alexia Georgiousis. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well, Gord. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good. I'm, I'm just so over this pandemic thing, though. I mean, just yeah. so over it. <laughs> <laughs> what is it from that movie network where he stands up and he yells, I can't take it anymore or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I'm just reflecting other people's feelings. Um, just as a reminder, we are live. And if you would like to join our conversation, uh, you can call us toll free from anywhere in North America at one 888 346-9141. And for international callers, we even have a line for you, 001-480-553-5760. I'll repeat these numbers later on. Uh, so you might get a pen if you want. Uh, we have a very special guest uh, with us this evening is uh, Marion Little. Marion, welcome. Thank you, Gord. Thank you, Alexia. It's great to have you here. It's really uh, now, wonderful to be here. Yeah, who is this wonderful woman? Okay, um, <laughs> Marion Little. Um, she has a master's in dispute resolution, um, is a Center for Nonviolent Communication certified trainer, a mediator uh, trainer, a restorative uh, justice trainer, and teaches uh, university courses in dispute res- revolu- resolution or revolution. Um, (laughs) reflective practices and collaborative leadership. She is halfway through writing a book on the evolution of nonviolent communication uh, with uh, actually with Rosenberg's uh, publisher, uh, Puddle Dance Press. What a great name, Puddle Dance. Uh, (laughs) Marion served on uh, executive director for various social service uh, charities and specializes in addressing institutional violence. Uh, She fosters safe sanctuary in relationships and communities. We need that a lot. Marshall Rosenberg is the developer of uh, nonviolent communication uh, beginning back in the 60s when he was working on racial uh, problems and segregation. Uh, Marion happened to meet him, um, Marshall Rosenberg, in 2000 and was deeply moved by his uh, heart, uh, the simplicity and the elegance of nonviolent communication. Uh, she was lucky enough to study with him um, until 2006 and has researched the history and impact of nonviolent communication for the past 16 years. If I'm not mistaken, you wrote a thesis in this. <laughs> yes. True, it's true, yes. Uh, yeah, I thought I remembered <laughs> that. Uh, she also facilitates nonviolent communication workshops and applied the principles in the wilds out there for the last 20 years, and it keeps her rooted in unflinching honesty and unconditional empathy. Welcome. Wow, thanks. Yeah, thanks, you sound Gord. great, don't you? When someone else reads it out? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm that's, that's very impressive, actually. <laughs> I think it's very cool that you worked with, uh, uh, with Rosenberg. Um, so, actually, Rosenberg is, is fascinating, too. I mean, you know, his, his, uh, he was, like, inspired by Gandhi and uh, also by uh, Eric Fromm. Um, but he also then worked with Carl Rogers, I mean, those are some pretty heavy hitters in this field. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that um, that certainly Eric Fromm was was an influence, but Carl Rogers would have been a much deeper influence, a much uh, more significant influence early in his development. He was a student of Carl Rogers and a colleague ah. and participated in a major research project with Rogers around okay. uh, empathy and empathic listening back in Wisconsin. That would have been in the late 60s, probably. Well, I'm a big fan mm. of Rogers. Yeah, Pardon I me? Like his, I'm a big fan of Rogers. Mm-hmm. I like his, his uh, approach to working with people. Yeah, and then the nonviolence piece, I would say, yeah, Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and that really comes from Rosenberg's involvement with the civil rights movement uh, in the States through the 60s and the 70s. And as a, a young Jewish boy uh, growing up, um, post-war America, he also was on the receiving end of some pretty violent um, racist um, harm. Absolutely. yeah. Uh, as he was growing up and, and really asked these questions about what, what, why do people uh, hurt each other? And uh, what is it that would contribute to our well-being? What is it that would contribute to our collective well-being and individual well-being? And um, really spent a long time exploring those, those questions about how to, um, how to be, uh, with ourselves and how to be with each other. That's kind of what it's all about, isn't it? Um, you know, that's that's the whole crux of this show. Actually, is about those connections. You know, uh, with ourselves and with each other. Um, so, let, let, to put it together, what? How would you describe then what is nonviolent communication? Mm. So. Um, yeah, I, I would say that uh, in terms of this particular process, uh-huh. that nonviolent communication is really a, a practice, an invitation to express ourselves honestly without attacking others and to uh, listen to and receive uh, the heart of what's going on for someone else without being distracted by messages that are really hard to hear. So really translating and hearing into the heart of what's going on for other people, really expressing our truth with honesty. It's about that intrapersonal or inner dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's about the interpersonal dialogue, the dialogue between us and other people, but it's also about a systemic dialogue. How are we interacting with the systems and structures um, that, uh, you know, really organize our, our society and our institutions? Right, well, and right. I, f- I find that really interesting um, because I, I remember reading something about Rosenberg and he had was saying how he didn't really like to use, you know, violent, like to call it nonviolent communication. And why was that? Yeah, I, I think that it, what he was, um, I think it was really tricky for him to name what he was talking about. And part of that was probably because he really... Um, discourages the use of labels and and uh, labeling. Uh, those can be really useful for making sense out of the world, but they really can interfere with connection. If the goal is connection, mm-hmm. labels can interfere. Uh, but when he was talking about nonviolence, I think he was really referring to uh, what Gandhi talks about, uh, the term ahimsa, uh, which is when violence subsides from the heart and compassion arises. And so it's a kind of uh, compassionate nonviolence that's um, that's deeper than what we might think about normally in terms of just physical harm or something like that. It's it's about that impulse to violence subsiding and compassion rising up. 
Well, we sure need it right now because I think that everyone is feeling the pressures of the pandemic and the restrictions and the back and forth and the changing. And I think this is such a valuable tool um, and really how how can people learn about it but that's you know that's part of deepening awareness because it seems that that's also very much a part of this work yes certainly um yeah it is this is uh this this time that we're in is a time of incredible uh transition and, and transformation that's going on around us we don't know yet what things are going to look like um we know that they're going to look different and mm. uh and one of the roles that a process like nonviolent communication or NVC can serve is to really help people to uh, be in dialogue with themselves in a way that's nourishing and compassionate, to really help to shift that uh, inner critic that, um, you know, if we're, we're really attacking ourselves all the time, that can be really draining and exhausting and, and it can really be a, a, a source of burnout. So that mm-hmm. inner dialogue but also shifting how we are with each other, recognizing that as each person in front of us responds with different kinds of distress, each person is triggered differently by the the uncertainty and the and the fear that they're experiencing right now. Um, and so how do we find ways to listen uh, without taking personally uh, somebody else's pain? How do we find ways to be present with our own distress? And how do we uh, bear witness to uh, what's going on in the world around us in a way that's both compassionate, but also stepping into action. It's not just about um, it's not just about empathy, armchair empathy. Uh, mm-hmm. Rosenberg was very mm-hmm. much about stepping into action, and I, I would say that um, I was going to say earlier that Paulo Freire and Pedagogy of the Oppressed was a huge, huge influence um, that uh, that is. Uh, you, you know, very evident in his his first uh, book in 1972. So th- this, all these pieces tie together, and we're feeling it more now. You know, where it's more evident. Right. It's always been that way, but it's just much more evident now. Yeah, I think that you know, with uh, you know, the work that I've been doing, like I wanted to go back to this, but you kind of jumped it just out of my head. Was the in the intra inter you know, and the systemic was, you know, our intra dialogue is so destructive with so many people, you know, years of, of, you know, being a therapist is just, you know, it's probably one of the primary things we have to deal with along the way, you know, and then, and then how that's projected on how, how we do talk to other people or interact with other people. And it's, it, it really is destructive, you know, um, you know, in relationships, you know, uh, that probably has to be, as with anything, we all find out what our issues are in relationships, um, you know, sooner or later. But that's, uh, that's a tough one, you know. So, t- so let's, let's talk about words, you know. Um, that seems to be a big thing with this area, you know. It's like, how are words violent? Well, <clears throat> this is a really uh, great question. I, I have an undergraduate degree in linguistics, and so, so I really oh. love mm-hmm. getting into the, into the language aspect mm. of this. Um, and so just rein me in if I, if I okay. go, <laughs> in, go in too far. Uh, but uh, so the idea is that, um, uh, you know, there's that old children's saying, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And right. um, years ago, I, I became involved in some abuse prevention work through the Canadian Red Cross. 
and was really thinking about that children's phrase. And I, and I realized that actually sticks and stones can break my bones and words can break my heart. And mm. that, um, that as social creatures, as storytelling creatures, human beings are affected uh, both physically, uh, but we're also affected emotionally, intellectually, and socially. And uh, words are the means of uh, touching each other uh, intellectually and socially um, and emotionally. And, and when we use words that label or blame or shame, words that judge, uh, this can really fracture connection. And it, and it is a kind of violence. It's also a precursor to larger forms of violence. So uh, when we look into wider society and, and pop culture and we see that the heroes commit endorsed violence and the villains commit uh, condemned violence mm -hmm. and really it's, uh, you know, somebody's saying who's the hero and who's the villain, but really both are, are committing violence. And so, so Rosenberg, through nonviolent communications, is inviting people to think about a, a totally different narrative. Um, and it's a narrative where we, um, when the intention is to connect, uh, that we step away from the labeling and the blaming and the shaming and the judgment and speak much more with much more clarity around what we see and hear, how we feel about it. What are the needs beneath that? And what is it that I'm hoping for? And that I'm asking myself that as well as uh, people around me. Uh, there is another piece around the structure of English and other Indo-European languages or languages within the same family tree as English, where um, uh, the verb to be is very central to the structure of our language. And uh, it's it doesn't necessarily have to be. It's a sort of a... a habit as much as it is structural, but the verb to be functions as an equal sign. And so uh, the verb to be, uh, for listeners that, you know, their grammar lessons are a long time ago, um, it's I am, you are, he is, she is, they, they is, they are, this kind of thing. So um, it, it functions as an equal sign. I am a jerk. I am a procrastinator. You are an idiot. You are a hero the movie was garbage. The movie was fabulous. Uh, so we're creating this equal sign and a static relationship between myself and the other thing and what it is. And I flatten it out into a very limited aspect of, of its expression. So uh, when we're using nonviolent communication, we're actually much more aware of that. And we're, instead of saying... I am this or you are that, I say, oh, well, I've noticed something specific and I'm having this experience. I'm feeling something as a result of it. And, and it, you know, it's because there's a need, a, a universal human need related to that. Here's, here's what I would like. Here's what I'm hoping for. So it's a, it's a really fundamental shift in how we use English. And there are many mm. languages in the world that do not use the verb to be in the way that, that we do. And the worldviews that arise from that and the justice systems, the disciplinary systems that arise from that are, are different, more restorative, some might say. Really, hmm. really interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. Because, I mean, when I, when I do, you know, uh, some uh, conflict resolution between 
you know, couples or whatever, I'm using very similar in that is, you know, when you do this, you know, or, or you, you, when you start off with you, uh, but it's to start off from the I'm feeling place, you know, that, mm. you know, it, it stops the person from flying off into their, the other person into defenses or whatever uh, by stating, you know, I'm, I've never heard of it called nonviolent. It might be, that might even be its origin. Who knows? Uh, uh, but certainly, you know, that's a big one in terms of, of um, you know, myself and other, other therapists uh, teach that, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that was big for Rogers, and Rosenberg yeah. certainly didn't develop that. The I statement is, is a really powerful piece and very empowering for people to learn. Well, and and even in naturopathic medicine and practice, very often people will identify with their physical diagnosis. And that's why I really applaud the fact that Rosenberg was not a fan of labeling, because labels do create a staticness to whatever pathology might be happening. And suddenly the person identifies that I am this, you know, yeah. this is who I am. I am this disease, which is not true. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's very existential right. on some level I as totally well. I totally agree with that completely, especially in mental health. Oh, it's like, yeah. let, me, let me act that out. So exactly. on this note, I am needing to take a break. <laughs> um, we are talking with Marion Little, and we are talking about nonviolent communication. We'll be back in two minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Imagine a place where ancient wisdom and modern research combine to create a non-judgmental, dynamic educational environment. We believe learning is much more than just theories. It is the application of those theories that anchor your learning deep inside yourself. Our physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual selves are embraced and nurtured, learning how to create an internal balance. This is Transformational Arts College of Spiritual and Holistic Training. Since 1988, we continue our mission of spiritually focused education for all who seek. We offer integrative personal development and professional training in spiritual psychotherapy, holistic health care, spiritual director, coaching, and esoteric studies. We are located in Lawrence Park in Toronto on Young Street, north of Lawrence Avenue. It's easy to get to and harder to leave. Visit our website at transformationalarts.com or inquire at TAC at transformationalarts.com or call us toll free at 1-888-TAC-SELF. Transformational Arts, bringing body, mind, and spirit together. Follow the Voice America Empowerment Channel on Twitter. You already know we're full of great ideas, and our hosts have plenty to say. We want to hear from you, too. Be sure to follow us at VA Empowerment and come back every day to see what's next. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Listening to Things Worth Considering with Gord Riddell and Alexia Georgiousis. We'd love to hear from you via email to info at spiritgrows.ca. That's info at spiritgrows.ca. Now back to Things Worth Considering. Welcome back. Uh, I'm here with, or we are here with, uh, they are here with, uh, <laughs> as we go through our, our linguistics. Um, I'm with Marion Little. We're discussing 
uh, language and how it applies to nonviolent communication. Just as a reminder, if you have your pen in handy and you would like to join the conversation, uh, toll free in North America, it is 1-888-346-9141. And for international callers, your number is 001-480-553-5760. And now back to Marion Little. Uh, um, enough of these numbers. We'd love to hear from you, though. Um, so we were talking about ownership of diagnosis, you know, that, you know, someone who's depressed can actually take on even greater emphasis or, or you know, this is what depression looks like, they think. It's often what we think it looks like. Um, my work with addicts has, has, you know, I've been concerned about, you know, owning the title for like 50 years of being an alcoholic. I know that will get lots of people riled up when I say that. Uh, but there is a point where I think that we can move past what we were and we don't have to keep, it's like carrying, you know, moving our, our past forward with us all the time, you know, and it's all the best in our language. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a, a psychologist or a psychotherapist, um, but I have spent many years working with folks who struggle with substance use uh, to the point that it interferes with uh, their enjoyment of themselves or their relationships. Yep. And, um, and I think with nonviolent communication, what I've been challenged to do is to think about, like, if I say, well, I'm sad, uh, there's that risk that I'm like I am the embodiment of sadness, that I use that I am, that verb to be as the equal sign. Instead of being clear about what I'm experiencing and how that it's impacting me and, and what are the needs there that I'm noticing, needs within me, needs between me and others or needs I'm witnessing out in the community. So um, in terms of in terms of labeling, I, I really, I, I think that... Um, there's a risk with folks who practice nonviolent communication that they abandon labels altogether as well. And so, so I, I think that it's important to be discerning and to have a sense of what supports relationship, what supports connection. Uh, most of the time, labels tend to get in the way. But for some folks, perhaps a label provides a bit of structure and a, and a bit of order. And in, if that's the case, then, uh, and it's life-serving, you know, ride that train. But, but if it's interfering with your relationship with yourself, your relationship with community, your relationship with institutions and, and structures, uh, then perhaps we need to shift our language. Perhaps shifting the language would help. And, and for me, certainly uh, negotiating with government structures, um, partnering with uh, other nonprofit agencies, navigating interpersonal conflict, coping with my own grief and distress in my own life it's been really helpful to be able to step away from equating myself with what's happening and instead observing, noticing, and trying to dive a little bit deeper and finding out what are those needs? What is that impulse towards life that's yearning to be fulfilled? Well, I think that, Marion, that's so beautifully said because many of us, I know that for myself, that half the time it's it was a sense of I don't really know what I'm needing and really being aware of what the experience is because it's not what we're surrounded by our systems don't provide that and 
what I see in practice is that people chase a diagnosis. They chase a label. They've gone to conventional mm. practitioners. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong. And people want to find something, another test, not, something to say, this is what's happening for me. Mm. This is who I am. Because then, it and it's a, it's a fine line because I think that it can give some structure, mm. but it really is that attachment that is very, very limiting in terms of being a human being, right? Yeah. Well, and what I'm hearing or, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but what it it sounds like you're coming across is that deep yearning to be heard, the deep yearning to be seen and heard, to be acknowledged, uh, to have your experience validated. uh, And in systems and structures where we lean heavily on labels, people can walk away with an experience of not being heard. Uh, it can also happen if there aren't labels and structures. So again, we want to have discernment, but the but the main thing is figuring out what is that need and how do we serve how do we serve that need? The needs are never in conflict with each other, but our strategies might be. And so the the labeling is a strategy. Right. Uh, and and so so if the need is to be seen and heard, if the need is to be recognized, this is something every human being has had since the beginning of time. Different cultures have different strategies for meeting those needs, and the strategies could be in conflict. Uh, but that need there uh, drives people to seek support in all kinds of different places. And um, often uh, people will keep going until they can find somebody who's willing to listen, who's willing to really be present. And um, I'm, I'm a big admirer of the work of Gabor Mate um, mm-hmm. in Vancouver and uh, was really fortunate to attend a few conferences and workshops when I, with him when I lived on the west coast of Canada. And um, one of the things that, that I really value about his work is that he talks about connection being the opposite of addiction. Uh, so mm. it's, oh, totally. it's that yeah. we're seeking connection and nurturance. And Absolutely. And that so much of the behavior uh, that, that we engage in that ends up causing harm, uh, Rosenberg would say that's a tragic expression of unmet needs, that there's this, this, this effort to meet needs using strategies at the expense of others. And that yeah. if we can find our way to identify what the needs are, to hold our needs in common, then we can come up with strategies that are mutually respectful. And I believe the vast majority of people want to do that. It's just that if if my whole life experience has trained me that it's me or you, most people will say, well, sorry, bud, it's going to be me. You're going to go down. But if people have a chance to to learn that it's possible to meet their own needs and honor the needs of the people around them, uh, my experience has been, and, and certainly I've witnessed in my research, uh, that that people want to contribute to each other. People want to contribute to community. They want to contribute to their own lives. And they would far prefer to do that in a way that lifts up the people around them. There are some people where that's not the case, but the vast majority of people, you know. I think I, the vast majority of people, in my experience, often just don't know what their needs are or that it's okay to have needs. Oh, yeah. I mean, what do we say about people who have needs? They're needy. Yeah. <laughs> and like, that's a bad thing. And yeah. to me, that's so we sad because if you think about needs, this is the, the life impulse rising up in all of creation. Every living species, every living cell uh, has needs in order to not only 
survive but thrive. And um, so this sparks for me a whole little bit of conversation around needs theory, and which is central to nonviolent communication. Uh, but I learned a few years ago that uh, Abraham Maslow actually appropriated, appropriated and slightly misunderstood needs theory, uh, that, this, that this was actually taught to him by Blackfoot elders in, in Alberta. And I'd love to talk wow. about that. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Curious. So, uh, so my understanding, and there's research around this, a uh, fellow by the name of Ryan Heavyhead and um, Narcissa Blood, both are members of the Blood Nation, uh, or sorry, the Blood Tribe in the Blackfoot Nation in Alberta. And there's a beautiful uh, lecture that Ryan Heavyhead gave. It's on YouTube, uh, I think he gave it in 2018, exploring uh, Maslow's visit to uh, Blackfoot First Nation in Ma- when Maslow was in his 20s. And so he was intentionally taught needs theory uh, by Blackfoot elders. And um, so, uh, and this research is actually also a summary of it is available on a Canada Research Council uh, webpage on the Government of Canada uh, website. And um, there's a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, civil rights um, advocate in Canada by the name of Cindy Blackstock, who's the executive director for Caring for First Nations Society, who's written a, an essay called The Emergence of Breath of Life Theory. The Emergence of Breath mm. of Life Theory. Mm. And she also talks about Blackfoot needs theory and her interpretations of that. So from Uh, Listening to both of them, my understanding is that Blackfoot elders taught Maslow needs theory on purpose. Uh, He came seeking out information about human well-being and and how people can thrive and and be be well. And um, so what, what we have as a pyramid, as a hierarchical pyramid, Mm -hmm. where um, the individual needs for survival, you know, food, shelter, water, et cetera, must be met before the next level in the hierarchy can be met before the next level in the hierarchy and so on. We know that we now know that that's not factual because there are people all over the world who don't have enough food and shelter and water, but have beautifully uh, developed uh, spiritual practices and creative Mm -hmm. expression. According to that hierarchy, you can't get to without, without those lower levels, so-called lower levels being met. So, so that uh, hierarchy we know is inaccurate. We also know that this pyramidal structure is um, is inaccurate. And according to um, uh, Cindy Blackstock and, and Ryan Heavyhead, uh, this this structure is not a not a pyramid at all. Cindy Blackstock hypothesizes that perhaps it's a teepee, mm-hmm. and that the pillars of the teepee that hold it up mm-hmm. are in fact the community well-being pieces, the pieces around. Uh, spiritual practice, creative expression, meaning and purpose, collective celebration, collective mourning, and that all the other needs are held together in the circle at the base of the teepee, and all the people are held together there. And that wow, that's when, amazing. When these amazing. pillars are in place, uh, all those fundamental needs are met, the needs for belonging, the needs for safety, for play, for food, for shelter, everybody's then tended. Uh, so this idea of needs as an individual concept, my needs are unmet, your right. needs are unmet. This is uh, not actually rooted in the needs theory that was handed to Maslow. Uh, what was handed to him was an idea about needs that exist between us, within us, around us. 
and that um, and and what uh, Rosenberg talks about is how our feelings are notifiers for that. The same way that your cell phone is a notifier to let you know um, an important message is coming in, mm-hmm. or a non-important message. Right. Or yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can ignore it. <laughs> yeah, really. We don't like it. Uh, yeah, that's um, it's interesting that it that it, you know his work then he ended up evolving into like the pyramid and you know like um, you know what's really interesting when I, you know you hear about someone's work being you know changed around is is Elizabeth Kubler Ross um, and the you know the five stages of of dying she didn't intend that to be an across the board anything mm. that came from her working specifically with people who were in the dying process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But and it's, grief, it's yeah. now, and grief, yeah. And it's now become, though, this, this across-the-board grief thing for when you lose somebody or your dog or your job or, you know, um, that we're all supposed to go through all, all of this. And that's not what she mm-hmm, intended it mm-hmm. to be, even remotely. Yeah, I don't think Maslow intended a pyramid either. I've read a number of different papers that say that that came later. Mm-hmm. I do think that he talked about a hierarchy, though, and he also talked about needs as individual, as is a uh, in a very individualistic way, in a way that's mm-hmm. that's you know, and this is one of the critiques certainly of nonviolent communication that comes out of a colonial settler um, individualistic approach to thinking about self and relationship, and um, you know, I think that's a valid critique. I think we can all, you know, those of us who who uh, grow up in cultures where our needs for autonomy and choice are deeply met, where we have many, many strategies for that, and perhaps not as many strategies as would serve us uh, mm-hmm. for connection and community and belonging, uh, we could really benefit from stretching ourselves and finding our ways into creating more balance between the individual and uh, the collective, between our independence and our interdependence. Right. Yeah. And what I really like about nonviolent communication as well is, at least what I know of it, and I've had, you know, some limited experience, is that there seems to be definitely uh, a sense of, of um, self-accountability around recognizing that these are my needs and how do I look at meeting them without saying, you know, I have this need, you fix it. Or, you know, you need to show up, especially in intimate relationships, right? Where that can be, I'm feeling angry and you, you know, expecting that someone is going to fix this for you. Mm-hmm. Or that, that, that to me, I don't know if I'm using the right words, but it really makes me feel that sense of recognizing that, oh, no, I, I, this is for me, and and I can share this, but I'm not putting it on you to fix it for me. Yeah, I think that there's a real opportunity through what in nonviolent communication is often called self-empathy. Uh, and I would add that self-honesty is an important aspect of that, to have self-honesty as well as self-empathy that we're directing towards ourselves and others. So um, NBC is comprised of these two uh, pieces in interplay, the honest expression of our our assertive, our assertive autonomy and the compassionate listening in relation and responsiveness to our interdependence. And so we can direct that at ourselves and at others. And um, yeah, I think that, that it certainly does invite that. It certainly does invite that. There are folks who will use nonviolent communication uh, to try and get what they want. 
I was is, just, yeah. yes. Right, I was going, <laughs> get out of my head, lady. <laughs> yeah. And, and, so these are powerful. These are powerful tools. And you know, like uh, Darth, yeah. like like Darth Vader and Yoda, right? Masters of the same force. One right, uses yep. that same force to to strike fear into the hearts of others and and wreak destruction all all around. Where the other, where Yoda uses the force to empower and skill and lift up the people around doesn't take himself uh, very seriously but takes the skills very seriously where mm-hmm. Darth Vader takes himself very seriously and can't you know like is just gonna do the death grip on anybody that interferes so <laughs> so this yes. is like that and so how do we uh, hold that intention and um, I mean it really it really comes down to is is my intention to connect? Or is mm-hmm. it to try and get what I want? And if it's yeah. to try and get what I want, uh, you know, I, I might want to check myself and find out if there are ways to do that 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 honor the needs Both of parties. the people around me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I was really thinking of that in terms of how this can be, you know, turned around when you jumped in on there. Um, of, of It can be, it can really can be used to, like, pull other people in, you know, uh, uh, in a very sort of manipulative way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we should have discretion, right? Like the same way, like with labels, it's not about abandoning it all, but it's about being aware. Is this actually contributing here or not? Right. And the same thing with empathy. Empathy is an incredibly powerful tool. But if somebody's out in public and you begin empathizing with them, they might find that a little invasive because they don't want to burst into tears in public. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we can have little discretion. We can show some compassion and be present. But part of the compassion can be to dial that back a little bit and wait until a time that's more mutually more supportive. Yeah. 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 yeah, we need to dial back here. Uh, All right. <laughs> <laughs> we are taking a break. <clears throat> You're listening to Mary Little on Things Worth Considering, and we will be back in two minutes. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Imagine a place where ancient wisdom and modern research combine to create a non-judgmental, dynamic educational environment. We believe learning is much more than just theories. It is the application of those theories that anchor your learning deep inside yourself. Our physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual selves are embraced and nurtured, learning how to create an internal balance. This is Transformational Arts College of Spiritual and Holistic Training. Since 1988, we continue our mission of spiritually focused education for all who seek. We offer integrative personal development and professional training in spiritual psychotherapy, holistic health care, spiritual director, coaching, and esoteric studies. We are located in Lawrence Park in Toronto on Young Street, north of Lawrence Avenue. It's easy to get to and harder to leave. Visit our website at transformationalarts.com or inquire at TAC at transformationalarts.com or call us toll free at 1-888-TAC-SELF. Transformational Arts, bringing body, mind, and spirit together. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are 
listening to Things Worth Considering with Gord Vidal and Alexia Georgiusis. We'd love to hear from you via email to info at spiritgrows.ca. That's info at spiritgrows.ca. Now back to Things Worth Considering. Hi, welcome back. Um, this is our last chance to give you our phone number if you would like to call us. Toll free in North America is one 346 9141 if you would like to say anything or talk with Mary Little. Um, you know, there's, there's um, basically it's sort of outlined that there's four, you know, sort of approaches to um, uh, or actions that are taken as part of the, the NBC. Um, so can, can you kind of go through those? Sure, yeah. So Rosenberg identifies four steps or four uh, components to, as touchstones to help people um, stay focused on that connection piece and to resist falling into our habit of labeling and blaming and shaming and so forth. And so whether we're practicing honesty and empathy towards others or towards ourselves, there are these four components. And so the first one is uh, observation. Well, in fact, right before that, the step is to notice that I'm thinking, judging, blaming, shaming thoughts, right? So yeah. as soon as I notice that, that's the, that's the red flag saying, oh, something matters. So what is it that's happened? And then I want to get clear on what did I actually see or hear? So an observation free from judgment as much as possible, instead of saying, um, you know, uh, oh, Marion, your pink hair is crazy, or oh, Marion, your pink hair is, is, I love um, it. You love <laughs> that's, it, right? That's great. Yeah. You love your pink, my, you, you know, your pink hair is wonderful, your pink hair is crazy. Those are judgments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead of that, you might say, I see you have pink hair, right? Period. That's the observation. And then the next step is to connect that with a feeling. So what comes up in you when you see the pink hair? So some Greece. people might say, What's that? <laughs> I said Greece. Greece. Yeah. The movie Greece. Yeah. The movie Greece. Yeah. The movie Greece. Yeah. So yeah. when you think about the movie Greece, how do you feel? Like what comes yeah. up for you? Yeah. Some, a light. It was dancing. A lightness. Yeah. Dancing. Yeah. Some kind of delight. And yeah, joy. So you say, okay, well, I see the pink hair. Observation. Uh, feeling. I, you know, have a feeling of delight or joy or playfulness. Yeah. And so then, uh, in this case, we're talking about perhaps a need met. When we have expansive, open feelings, they point to needs met. When we have contracted, tight feelings, uncomfortable feelings, they point to needs unmet. And the needs met or unmet could be in us, between us, or in the world around us. Okay. Uh, and, and we know that because we have mirror neurons in our brain that, mm-hmm. that actually fire off as though we're experiencing something even when we witness it somewhere else. Mm. So we're very elegantly and finely connected with each other. So we've got the observation, the feeling, and then the need. We want to figure out what need is met. And so it could be a need for aesthetic pleasure, could be a need for play, could be a need for um, stimulation or amusement, like that. And then at the end, there would be a request. So observation, feelings, needs, and then a request. And there are two kinds of requests. One is a request for connection, and the other is a request for action. And Rosenberg often talked about connect before you correct or empathy mm. before action. And so, and, and that connect before you correct or connect before or empathy before action, that can take a long time. So I used to think that I could connect in a conversation 
and then ask for action, what the action was that I wanted. <laughs> okay, right? Right, right. And if there's a really intense conflict, uh, that's just not going to happen. Sometimes if there's an intense conflict and the relationship is feeling broken or there's incredible pain or distrust, then the commitment to empathy before action has to be more sustained. And so that could be a few conversations. It could be a few weeks. It could be a few years. And at yeah, some that point, really kills us, doesn't it, though? Well, it can, it can be What do you mean we hard. can't talk this through and get it over with tonight? Yeah, we want action right now. We want the quick yeah. fix. We want the magic pill. But the reality is that change happens at the speed of trust. Change happens at the speed of relationships. Um, I, I read that in a beautiful book by uh, Adrian Marie Brown called Emergent Strategies. And also Peter Block talks about that in his dialogue processes. Mm-hmm. And so really, if we're committed to being in connection with somebody, then we have to be responsive. If they don't want to play, we have to back off right, and right. find other ways to be connected. And sometimes it means choosing to honor somebody's need for space. And just in my own heart and mind, from a distance, imagining what might they be feeling, what might they be needing, and trying to be present with that until they're ready to be in dialogue. In most cases, people are pretty quick to want to engage. And so my connection request could be, what are you hearing me say? So like, what, what are you picking up from all of this? Mm-hmm. And the other connection request would be, how are you? After hearing that, um, you know, play or amusement matters so much to me. How is that for you, right? And then the other person responds. And when they respond, you can also listen to them with uh, with those same four steps. Most people sort of distill it down to the feelings and needs. So if somebody speaks to me, if you said something to me about my pink hair, I might say to you, oh, are you kind of tickled because <laughs> your need for play is met or something like that? Right. That's very structural, what I was just saying. And Alexi, I'm remembering earlier, you were saying sometimes people can be kind of irritated by nonviolent communication. And I know I irritated many of the people I care about when I began learning <laughs> learning this. Yeah. And and I, perhaps I still do, I don't know. But, but, um, but over the years, uh, the people who are closest to me in my life have really helped me find my way into some naturalized, uh, naturalized ways of communicating. Uh, but those, those pieces are often in the back of my mind because they help me uh, in my own struggles around communication and my own struggles around social competence, they really help me to stay present with the other person as much as, much as possible. Yeah, and I think that's so well described because right now, I think with people in the pandemic being at home with their kids, working at home, I mean, I just can't imagine the intensity that, and I know of some parents that are really feeling that and incredibly stressful and incredibly difficult to communicate. So when that is happening, how can people sort of shift into a state? Because I know people can take now nonviolent communication uh, courses online that's available, but something that in the moment, because when we're in that reactive state or that stress state of being disconnected from ourselves, Mm. it's extremely challenging to try to say, you know, to speak in that, in that, in that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It it really is. And to me, um, I really value applying 
that practice towards myself and trusting the words that come. So, um, so when I'm noticing those contracted feelings and you, you notice it because you feel tightness in, in the back of your neck or in your jaw or in your throat and your belly, in your arms or hands, that's the fight or flight center of your brain. Right. Uh, and it's actually fight, flight, freeze and, and fawn or yes. friend. And yes. so the, the, the stress response in our brain is, is setting off protective measures. And when I notice that tension in my body, that's like the notifier on my phone going off saying there's an important message coming in. And if I just take a moment to breathe, just to even take a deep breath, to stand outside and look at the sky, to, um, you know, press a cold washcloth on my face, to, you know, anything that can just help me to settle for a moment, a glass of water, a deep breath, a walk around the block, um, and to take that deep breath and inquire what is it that matters so much to me right now? Not the strategy, not the thing I want. I want that kid to listen to me, or I want that partner to be more cooperative, or I want my sibling to do X, or I want my colleague to do Y. Not those strategies that we want people to do, but the why beneath it. Oh, I, I really need support right now. I really, oh, it's a, it's a need for respite. It's a need for rest. Oh, no wonder... I'm so exhausted. And uh, one of uh, my mentors, Robert Gonzalez, has beautiful workshops uh, around self-empathy practice that I really value. And, and, um, and also uh, Susan Skye is another one who has really beautiful um, empathy practice trainings and self-empathy. And so this process of just noticing what do I need and there isn't always an action. Sometimes that need is not going to be met uh, immediately. It may not be met for a while. Perhaps it's a need that has been unmet since my childhood and I mm. carry an old ache around it. Or it just needs to be acknowledged. Yes. So to bring that acknowledgement and compassion to myself, to turn yeah. my compassionate gaze inward and respond to the ache inside of me the way I would respond to a small child in distress, to be able to just say, oh, hello, old friend, to right. notice where, where does that tension live in my body? Can I just breathe into that? Can I honor it as the impulse of life rising up in me, letting me know what is needed, not just for me, but what is needed in right. the world right now. Mm -hmm. My deep yearning for respite is a need that is shared in the world and I'm holding it and I can cherish it this is, this is life. This is life coming up in me. And there's a bittersweetness to it. So the, the bitterness is the ache. And the sweetness is that this is what draws me towards what will serve life. And so I can then build strategies around that. How can I take action myself that increases my experience of respite or rest or rejuvenation? How can I contribute to that in other people's lives? How can I connect with that in nature? There are lots of ways that I can begin uh, experiencing that need uh, before I begin opening my mouth to negotiate with other people so that I'm actually right. filling my own cup and I have something to offer yes. when I engage with others instead of coming to others from an empty cup. Right. Now, you yes. wrote a poem, you said. Is that oh. 
<laughs> coming from this place. Are you going to share that with us? I, yes, I will. I will. Okay, so great. This is, a, this is a poem that, that came out of a research project that I did, and I was working with folks who had very different life experiences than me and realized um, that there were some places where we held commonality uh, and, and where we uh, knew each other's pain in, in a way. Honestly, these thoughts, these words that I'm saying seem to tie your eyebrows into knots and fill your eyes with tears and tighten the muscles of your jaw. I see your whole body tense as you try to understand what you've heard, what you say I've said. You're trying so hard to understand these things I did not say or mean or even think. You point your finger at me and hiss through your teeth like a wildcat defending its space, keeping its place, saving its face. I would like to be heard differently. I want to speak to you with honesty and clarity and tenderness. I want you to know what is so alive in me. I want you to hear the tenderness I feel when I think of you or me. The tenderness of a purple bruise pressed firmly with a thumb. The tenderness of a skinned knee the tenderness of fingertips, of a squalling newborn overwhelmed by the first breath, of a family curled up together under Nana's quilt on a golden Saturday morning, the tenderness of my aching middle, aching to be understood, aching to understand. Would you tell me what you're hearing me say now? I love it. Beautiful, beautiful. That really, really pulls it together. Um, very nice. Thank nice. you. I like, I well, like, thank you for like, having me. I like it was it was wonderful having you. Yeah, it was uh, great. We, wanted, we I feel like we've just begun to scratch. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we'd love to have you back. Um, that you would come back and join us sometime. Sure, that sounds great. Give me a yeah. call. Okay. Awesome. All right. <laughs> we won't publish your number, uh, but we do have it. <laughs> no, but I am setting up a website. It's still co- under construction, but it's just marionlittle.com. Oh, wonderful. Great. Okay, we'll find you. Uh, I wanted to let people know about next week, um, uh, which is November 5, November already. Oy. Um, at 8 p.m., our guest will be Master... Teresa Yang. She is an internationally recognized master of Qigong. Uh, she's a speaker healer and a three-time number one international best-selling and award-winning author um, who speaks on how to achieve physical, emotional, and spiritual balance. What is so fascinating about this woman is that she has actually inherited the lineage of Grandmaster Wu in the uh, Qigong, which is very unusual that a woman would ever uh, achieve that uh, level of recognition. So she is joining us next week. Um, she's quite fascinating. And uh, we're going to be talking about all kinds of things to do with Qigong. So on that note, thank you all for listening. Um, Marian, thank you so much for being here. Alexia, as always, I love having you here. And we will be back next week. Be safe and be well. for tuning into Things Worth Considering. Please join your hosts, Alexia Georgiousis and Gord Riddell for another edition next Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, think about the connections in your life and how they define who you are. 